And I'll dig into microgrids a little more. It's a really interesting topic and it seems pretty simple and straightforward. Hey, if you got a solar PV system that can generate energy and you've got a battery storage system sitting next to it, why don't we just, you know, when the grid goes down, we'll just use those and it'll be fine. <laughs> Except it's actually quite complex. And so doing the analysis for a microgrid project adds a lot of time and complexity and often cost to the project. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Tom Willard on this episode. He's the principal and CEO of Sage Energy Consulting. Sage works with clients to help them implement renewable energy and energy efficiency projects, including solar, wind, energy storage, microgrids, fuel cells, and EV fleet transition planning and infrastructure support. They also provide evaluation of existing projects and independent due diligence for renewable energy and energy efficiency projects. Sage has extensive expertise working with public schools, colleges, municipalities, and private entities to ensure that the energy project outcomes are optimized and ongoing performance guaranteed. Their projects have saved hundreds of millions in energy costs for their clients, providing enduring benefits for the environment, resources, and fiscal health of their communities. They've helped more than 100 public and private organizations become leaders in the transition to renewable energy. Tom has more than 18 years of experience in energy consulting and development of energy sector businesses with a focus on the development of technical and financial models to predict potential energy asset allocations and financial performance. And he served as the CEO of the company since Sage's inception. In 2013, Tom also co-founded SolEd Benefit Corporation and wrote the financial models used to structure PPA and leasing financing that reduced the cost of renewable energy projects for public schools. This was a great episode of the podcast. You know, Tom brings a lot of insight into really the energy transformation that's happening. And he talks about the value that Sage Energy Consulting adds to their clients, how they get involved initially in the initial phases of a project with the financial and technical feasibility, then throughout the projects, even the O&M and asset management. And he talks more about different projects that they've done with the different technologies that I mentioned earlier. Also, it was interesting as well. He talks about the value of resiliency analysis that they do with microgrids because there's so many different benefits that are sometimes not quantified. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast and enjoy. Thanks again. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode. You'll learn more about them during this podcast. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have Tom Willard. He's the founder and CEO of Sage Energy Consulting. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Benoit. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think it would be helpful. I know like in the intro, we talked a little bit about Sage Energy Consulting, but it would be great to get more of an extensive description about your company. And also, it would be great to learn about how you started the company and why you started the company. I think that would be really great for our listeners to learn more about. Okay, great. And we do have a couple of interesting origin stories that I can chat about. So let me tell you a little bit about Sage just to lead things off. So Sage is a renewable energy consulting company. We're totally independent. So we're not hooked up with vendors that produced 
product manufacturers. We're not hooked up with vendors that sell product and we're not in the finance industry. So we're not bringing forward financing for these projects. We're purely a consultancy that sits on the customer's side of the table and brings expertise to the customer's team so that they can evaluate potential projects and make the best decisions for them. And so that's our job. And as I said, we're scrupulously independent. The company was founded in 2009, so we've been around for about 11 years as Sage Energy Consulting. Prior to that, we were called Sustainergy Systems, so Mm -hmm. we renamed in 2009, and right now we're 15 employees. We're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We work all over California, the West Coast, and all over the nation now. So that's a high level of our company. And how did we get it started? So there are a couple of main origin stories. And one of them is that my brother, David, graduated from Sonoma State University with a degree in energy management and design. And when he graduated, he decided to form a company. And that company he formed was called Sustainergy Systems. And he was doing renewable energy consulting and greenhouse gas inventories and things like that throughout the Bay Area and Northern California. At the same time, I was helping a friend of mine in the town I lived in start a small energy consulting company. And I was also on the local school board, public school board. And the school board at the time, this was around 2004, decided that it wanted to do a solar energy project. It was an early solar energy project and the school was very progressive. And so we went out to the vendor community, the local solar vendors, and got three bids in. And so the superintendent and I started looking at those bids and the bids were like apples and oranges and a steak. You know, it was, (laughs) it was, you know, we looked at and we were scratching our heads going, we have no idea. These things are all radically different. So I started looking around to see if there was anybody who could help us with that. And I couldn't really turn up anybody that did that. You know, like who does this? So what I did was I started taking apart each one of those proposals and I created some tools to look at them and evaluate them against each other and interviewed the vendors. And we were able to sort of break down what they were actually proposing and to some extent vet what they were putting forward. And we made it decision to go with one of the vendors. So that kind of got me started. And the construction manager that was working at the school at the time came to me about three or four months later and said, hey, you know how you worked with your school district there to figure out how to do a solar project? I've got this customer, which is a big school district down in the peninsula of the Bay Area, and they want to do like a four megawatt solar PV system. And they don't know what they're doing. Can you do that same thing for them that you did for your school? And I said, sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And so that turned out to be our first big customer at Sage. And we developed the tools to do that. We did a lot of research. We brought in some expertise. And that's how we launched the company. And we've been doing that kind of work ever since. That's an amazing origin story. And to me, it's amazing because like, there's not many companies I feel like that are doing what you're doing, really being independent and then really looking at the client's best interest. And there's so much value to what you're adding to your clients and to the industry. Because as you know, all these different proposals that you receive, you know, potentially it's all about comparing apples to apples because you creating a process to do that. And it sounds like a methodology really adds a lot of value to the industry. And That's really interesting. And it sounds like too, like a lot of your clients are schools. Can you talk about like who are your clients typically and how involved do you get in the process and what energy technologies? I know you do outside of solar. I think that would be really helpful to understand. 
Sure. So let's talk a little bit about technologies to start with. So Sage works with all market-ready advanced energy technologies that are in the market today. We keep an eye on what's going on in technology development because, of course, that's really important to looking forward in the future. But we're working with market-ready technologies. That's what our clients are really interested in. It's not you know, we don't do bleeding edge projects. And our clients are, I should say, you know, what does that mean? Well, solar PV, obviously a mature technology at this point. We work with solar thermal, fuel cells. We've done some small hydro. We do a lot of work with EVs, so electric vehicle fleet transitions and electric vehicle infrastructure. We do a lot of work with microgrids now as well. So those are big areas for us right now. And we can dig into those a little bit more later. As I mentioned, we started out, I started out as a school board trustee when I was getting into this. And a lot of our early clients were public schools in the state of California. And one of the reasons for that is that schools in the state of California had a number of different incentives that were available, especially to public agencies. And so schools were at the time and perhaps always looking for ways to reduce their operating costs so that they could spend more of their money on educating their children and making sure they can pay teachers a competitive salary. So schools are really interested in solar PV projects. And the deal with that is that in most public agencies, there are facilities monies and there are monies for operations where you're paying salaries and you're buying books and other supplies. Those are separated out, those two pots of money. And the way that they're funded by the states is separated out. And one of the few ways that you can take that facilities money, which is typically easier to get to build facilities and actually reduce your costs of your operation side is to put in a renewable energy project, a solar PV project to reduce your energy costs. So those energy costs for a school district, they're typically the third, maybe even the second highest budget item behind salaries and benefits. It's not a big amount. It's, you know, three or 4% of the budget, but it's the second highest item. And they could take the facilities monies, which they could get to more easily, build a PV system, reduce their operating costs, which allow them to pay their teachers better and add more programs for their students. That was the big play. Reduce your operating costs by using easier to get money. And that works out well for them. And so we've seen, you know, many of the school districts throughout California and now in other states have gone to renewable energy projects, both solar energy storage and other energy efficiency programs as well. So let's see, other of our clients, well, we work with all sorts of public agencies, counties, cities. We work with state agencies as well. We've been contracted by state agencies in California to work for them. We also work with private corporations. So for instance, a couple of the largest, and this will be interesting, a couple of the largest oil extraction companies in the state of California are our clients. Interesting. Yeah, the reason behind that is that oil extraction uses a tremendous amount of energy. And that energy that's used in extracting oil from the ground is that embedded energy has a high carbon content. So something like 20% of the natural gas in the state of California is used to heat up underground reservoirs of oil so it can be pumped out 
easier. That's a tremendous oh, wow. amount of, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing figure, right? Yeah. So the state has put in place something called the LCFS, the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, which is a carbon market that is used to reduce the carbon content in transportation fuels. Mm-hmm. And so we've been hired by a number of these companies in the industry to help them reduce the carbon content of the oils that they produce and refine in the state of California. And they can get them these carbon market credits for that. So just to give you an idea, we also work with large corporates and medium-sized corporates that are interested in things called virtual or financial or synthetic PPAs as well. But I'll just leave it there. We'll get too far in the weeds if we get too far into that. That is actually really interesting. And I think one of the things that would be interesting to speak about is what's the importance of like third party financing, meaning like he kind of mentioned the power purchase agreement in reducing operating costs, like basically energy costs. Can you talk about how that has really helped and how you help your clients, you know, analyze like the different proposals that you're receiving? And obviously they want the lowest price, but what else is really important to determine? Yeah, so those are good questions. And one of the first things that we do when we sit down with a new client is we listen, right? And what we listen to are what their goals and visions are for the project, and then what you know different ways they're comfortable in financing the project. And you mentioned one, which is a power purchase agreement, a third-party financing. So there are a number of different ways to finance these projects. And third-party financing, in predominantly power purchase agreements, is uh, a great choice now. I'll say that it's been around since the late 90s, the idea of Mm-hmm. Uh, solar PPAs. Sage didn't actually do one with any of our clients until well into 2013. Oh, wow. There are two reasons, really. Earlier on, the contract documents, the contracting around this was not really mature enough so that we felt that the risk was evenly distributed between the parties. If it was a school district developing it, oftentimes there would be too much risk put on the school district in these contract documents. So those have improved a lot. But more importantly, the cost to install and finance solar has gone down so much that a power purchase agreement is now a way to actually save money with very little risk in the future. So like I said, that all came together for us in our analyses in the 2013-2014 timeframe. And since then, as the price of installing and financing solar has gone down pretty dramatically, those power purchase agreements have become more and more competitive. And so we are at this point quite comfortable with them. Again, we don't just take anything off the street. We work with our clients to define exactly what they want, tell the vendors exactly what the system looks like. We allow them to bring their competitive, you know, their unique competitive advantages to the table, but we give them pretty tight guardrails so that we can compare the different vendors and so that the client gets exactly what they need. We see a lot of power purchase agreements now working with uh, number of customers all over the United States right now that are using power purchase agreements. There are other ways to finance as well. There are leases. Generally, we don't see leasing as competitive financially as a power purchase in most markets. There are some markets where power purchase agreements or PPA are actually illegal. In that case, we do see leases being used, but they're not as financially efficient. And so you don't see them as much. Again, this is at the scale of clients we work with, which are commercial to small utility scale clients. And of course, there are ways you can finance it yourself. You can take a loan, you can use cash, which is a great thing if you've got it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Some government agencies can go out to their constituents, the taxpayers, and have them put forward a bond, which the taxpayers pay for. And that's generally called a general obligation bond. Yes. And it's a bond where the taxpayers pay it off. So there's the taxpayers have the obligation and the district basically gets the money for free. You know, there's cost to issuing these bonds and we go through all of those overhead costs. But without actually having to finance, take a loan and pay it back, there's tremendous upside for government agencies that use general obligation bonds. And so we see those used from time to time on renewable energy projects, solar and battery energy storage and microgrid projects now. Definitely. I worked on actually one of those types of projects in New Jersey for a county for 35 different solar projects. That's great. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. And it was initially pretty complicated to structure, but then, you know, county agencies got pretty comfortable with creating that structure. They worked through a consultant actually to kind of get comfortable with that structure. So it's interesting that you talked about it because I was thinking about that project. Can you talk about like how you set up like the RFP for potential vendors that you work, that you basically are putting a bid out to? Because it was interesting. You mentioned the school board example of how Sage Energy Consulting started, where it was basically apples and oranges in the <laughs> proposal and stakes and whatever. You know, I'm sure that in your proposal, you're trying to have like an apples to apples comparison. So like, it would be interesting to understand like how you kind of write the RFP. And then also like, is there some certain qualifications for a vendor to basically participate? Great. Good questions. So to answer that question, I should probably describe what services Sage typically does. So we bring a package of services to our clients that really encompasses the entire project from the visualization and feasibility study up front through the what we call procurement, which is the RFP sure. phase, and then contracting, which is where you go into contract negotiations with the attorneys. And then there's design review, there's the construction phase, there's commissioning, and then there's closeout. And we also have an asset management phase. So we're in the project all the way from the front to the back and even into the operational phase, making sure that everything works and turns out for the best for our clients. So starting at the beginning of that project, we do a couple of different kinds of feasibility studies. We typically start off with what we call a feasibility review, which is just a quick benchtop look at the various different sites. You know, this is after we've talked to the client about mm -hmm. what their goals are for the project. Project, and we do a quick look at it and we can get, you know, fairly close just doing a benchtop study and it keeps the cost down and it will allow us to look at various different scenarios and do a go, no go on various different sites or various different technologies or even financing types. So we do that up front so that we keep the client's cost down. And if they decide to move forward with the project, then we go in and do what's called an investment grade feasibility study. And that'll be really focused on the technologies and the sites that were identified there. And we really dig in and do very detailed designs and financial modeling and financial risk analysis of the projects so that the client knows basically, here's exactly what's going to happen if we go do this. And we can get it very, very close because we do this day in, day out. We've done this for 15 years now. <laughs> so, and we know what the market looks like. We know what the technologies are. We know the vendors. We know what the pricing is. So we'll put that together and put it in front of the client say, here's exactly what's going to happen if you use this kind of financing, if you want to do these kind of technologies. 
They'll then make a decision of whether to move forward with the project or not. And if they move forward with it, we go into this RFP phase you were talking about. We typically do not do a separate qualification of the vendors, what's called an RFQ. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we put that into the RFP, the request for proposals. So it's an RFQ slash P, right? And there are a handful of hurdles in there that we talk with the client about, depending on, you know, how much experience they want the vendor to have, what kind of financial stability they require, what kind of parts and services they offer, things like that. But we'll stick that into the RFP typically. So it's one document and that's really upfront with the vendors. And we say, hey, if you can't check the boxes on this qualification section here, do not apply. So we make them jump those hurdles first. And then the RFP RFP uses that very detailed design work that we did in the investment grade feasibility sure. study as a guide for the vendors. Yes. We typically do what are called design build projects. So this is where the vendor actually does the design. They bring their unique competitive advantages to the table. So they might use different components and they might use slightly different designs, but we give them pretty tight guardrails that say, here's exactly where it goes. Here's what it's got to do. Here are some other constraints that we have on this. And, you know, again, it gives them room to bring their competitive advantage, but it also gets the client exactly what they want. And it allows us to compare apples to apples. In our RFP process, we have two electronic documents. One of them is a Word document, which is used for qualitative inputs. These things that we were just talking about, like the qualification criteria and questions about their team and experience, you know, their financing and things like that. And then we have an Excel document, which is the quantitative piece. And that Excel spreadsheet is where the vendors enter all of the exact components they're going to use, the costs of that, the various different financing types, how they're going to provide O&M and things like that. So we get those numbers in and we plug that Excel spreadsheet directly into our own financial model so that each of those vendors' proposals is analyzed with exactly the same assumptions that we made when we did the original project analysis, which are reasonable conservative assumptions. And that way we can compare very, very cleanly and concisely and also in a really transparent way for the vendors. Hey, here's how each one of you guys stacked up. Here's how this comes out at the end of the day. And we pull all that stuff into a report, which ranks the different proposals. And so it's all a very transparent, it's fair. The vendors know what we're doing. The client knows what we're doing. It's real clear. We've never had one of our procurements protested, yes. which is saying That's something. Great. That is saying something. That's huge. Yeah. And that's because we're really careful about that and we're very transparent and fair. And the vendors know us, you know, and and trust us at this point. So they will often bring us into projects. You know, a client doesn't know if they want to go forward. The vendors will say, hey, go talk to Sage and they'll help you do it. And the vendors just know we're not going to select them, you know, necessarily, but we will do an honest job. And that really gets the project go forward in the best case scenario. So there you go. That's really helpful. I mean, to really walk us through the whole process of like how you assist your clients from really the beginning, you know, inception of their ideas and then, you know, doing the feasibility and then obviously all the way to the end, you know, the O&M. So an asset management are related mm-hmm. to the project. I know you were saying that you're working a lot about like electrification of the fleet. Can you talk about like a representative engagement that you have in that? 
Sure. We're working with a handful, a number of different public transportation agencies in the state of California to help them transition their bus fleets, for instance, to electric buses. One of them would be San Joaquin Regional Transit District, and they're looking at transitioning between 250 and 500 buses from diesel to electric buses. And obviously, you don't do that quickly. This is a big deal. It takes a lot of planning. And sort of to give you an idea about it, when you buy an electric bus or electric vehicle like this, you're not just buying the vehicle, you actually have to buy the fueling infrastructure as well, because there aren't chargers, right? You don't have chargers. And it turns out that, you know, to run a bus or a truck, and we're working with, you know, agencies and clients that have trucking fleets as well. It's a lot of energy that needs to go into that truck to run it around or that bus. And so it can be a significant new load on the local distribution network. So this is the local electric utilities, yes. electricity distribution network. That all has to be planned out. The impacts there can have significant costs and have significant times to deploy because the electric companies, especially here in California, are quite busy fixing problems after fires right now, to be honest, and trying to figure out how to keep the grid up during fires and after fires. So there's a lot of planning that goes into just the EVSE, the infrastructure around charging these electric buses. And then there's a huge amount of planning that goes into route planning. So So you have to look at the different routes the buses are running, when they run them, how much energy they use to run them, where they can charge, how you can actually move them through the maintenance centers and get them charged in an efficient manner. So there's a whole routing network algorithm, which is my background actually is in routing and network algorithms. I used to be in the electronics industry in the communications world and wrote a bunch of those algorithms. I'm not doing that now, but it's a very similar problem, packet routing and bus routing in a maintenance yard. I find that fascinating. But that takes a huge amount of planning and it's a nascent industry. So there are a handful of companies that are really developing platforms for that, that we're working with. And we're developing our own platform to help us figure out, you know, how help our clients figure out how can we roll out these services to support transitions of fleets. There's a couple of questions that I have from it. Like, obviously, there has to be like interconnection, like upgrades. If you're putting this sort of charging stations into the network, who is actually paying for those upgrades? It depends on which state you're in and what time and what incentives are available. So in the state of California, for instance, there are from time to time incentives for installing the charging network where the state collects money through the utility districts primarily and uses that money to help EV charging stations be installed at various different places. Some of that can be offset often with local incentives. These are, again, typically through your local utility district. But if there are significant network upgrades, if, for instance, new wires need to be run out and new transformers need to be put in at substations, and there could be a lot of costs there. So, for instance, I mentioned the San Joaquin LJD project. The main maintenance site there has two separate you know, electricity drops off of two separate substations, which is actually a really good thing because <laughs> there's... <laughs> The load can be distributed between two substations, but that requires, again, a lot of planning and working with the local utility to figure out how most effectively to do that. And it can easily be in the millions of dollars of distribution system upgrades. 
A lot of times our clients are also looking at putting in renewable generation to offset some of that load in energy storage as well. So again, at San Joaquin RTD, they actually have a government grant that they're oh. using to put in solar PV systems and looking at adding storage to that as well to offset this increased, this significantly increased electric load costs. That's really interesting. I mean, clients require like a cost savings related to electrifying the fleet compared to using oil or is it more like a strategic sort of initiative? <laughs> it's, it's a good <laughs> question. And I like to say that the green and green energy is actually money. <laughs> at the end of the day, a lot of times it's money. Now, it's a little more nuanced than that. So in the state of California and in a number of other states, there are RPS and carbon requirements that are being put on various different agencies and businesses. And so to meet some of those requirements without penalties, they need to start moving towards these programs. And so there is some money. Oftentimes the penalties around this stuff are somewhat opaque, hard to figure out, but there's a lot of movement there. At this time, I would say we've seen that it's often considerably more expensive to put an electric bus in and offset a diesel bus that you've got all the infrastructure in place and all that stuff. Once this is all built out, though, and as the cost of electric vehicles comes down, and they're coming down significantly, primarily driven by the battery and the drive system pricing, which is being developed rapidly, we think that that's going to be a competitive technology in the not-too-distant future. Right now, that disparity in costs is often covered by state or local incentives. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of this podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. The team has been a strong force within the U.S. commercial solar market for years and was instrumental in the creation of virtual power purchase agreements and associated financing structures. Summit Ridge Energy has leveraged this experience to launch Summit Ridge Capital, a dedicated funding platform that acquires pre-operational community solar and battery storage projects. SRE also works with landowners across the country to maximize the value of their acreage by offering predictable lease income to host their solar farms. From site identification and system design to takeout financing to construction management, Summit Ridge Energy is the most complete solution provider in the community solar space. Summit Ridge Energy was interviewed twice on the Solar Maverick podcast. Definitely check out those episodes. The latest one was episode 87, how Summit Ridge Energy became one of the largest owners of community solar project in the U.S. That was with Steve Rader, who's the CEO of the company, and Brian Dunn, who holds a dual role of COO, CFO for Summit Ridge Energy, and they're both founders of the company. And then there was an earlier interview, episode 26, a developer's perspective on the U.S. solar market with Steve Rader, who again is the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge Energy. If you want to learn more about Summit Ridge Energy, you could check them out at their website, which is srenergy.com or info at srenergy.com. We'll We'll be also having in the notes of the podcast details about our sponsor. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast just kind of switching gears. I mean, you mentioned another you know, energy technology that you work on is like microgrids. It would be great if you could define it and maybe even talk about you know, your microgrid project. I know I was reading about the project that you did with the Santa Barbara Unified School District, which sounded yes. like a pretty amazing project. Sure. And complicated too as well. <laughs> 18 different sites. 
a fixed rate. These, yeah, yeah, these are complicated projects. So a microgrid, I'm going to give you a very simple definition. There are much more detailed definitions, but microgrid is basically a electrical load that in this case, I'm going to say it's going to be a building or a campus that is typically connected to the utility grid. Utility grid goes down. A microgrid allows that building or campus to continue to have electrical power without the utility grid being up for some amount of time. And that can be for a very short period of time through maybe infinitely. The thing, the microgrid might be able to run offline away from the utility grid indefinitely. And that depends on how much generation and how much storage is on site and what the load profiles look like. So microgrids are a big thing in California because what are called PSPS events, which is public safety power shutdowns. Right now, what that means is that everybody's heard of the state of California just burning out of control in the summer and the fall. What's happening there is that many of those fires historically have been caused by utility electrical systems being hit by trees or by, you know, failures of transformers or what have you. And so in order to reduce the risk of those fires being caused by the utilities and the utilities having to pay for the damage of those fires and going bankrupt, like our local utility here, PG&E, in order for them to manage that problem, they're very closely following weather patterns. Patterns. And if it looks like there's a weather event which will increase the risk of fires from utility equipment, they will shut down the grid, just turn off the power to all their clients in that area. That's been happening for the last few years throughout the state of California. And that's a big deal. So there are certainly businesses, but even more importantly, there are customers and hospitals that have critical medical needs, for instance, that need to be addressed and require electricity to be on essentially all the time. So microgrids are, again, a big deal because a lot more of this grid is being shut down. And so our customers are coming to us and saying, hey, you know, we're interested in reducing our energy costs and putting in solar PV and batteries. And if we do that, why don't we just do a microgrid? <laughs> and that way, we'll have some resiliency to these grid outages and maybe we'll be able to continue running our business or, you know, keep our kids in school or what have you. So you mentioned a project we're doing. We're doing quite a few of these, but a big one is is this Santa Barbara Unified School District project. So it's turned out to be a total of 16 sites that have solar photovoltaics on them. And then six of those sites will have batteries and will be microgridable. And what that means is exactly that. Those six sites, which are bigger schools, the high schools and the middle schools in Santa Barbara there, when the grid goes down, they'll be able to continue operating. And that'll provide a couple of different things. So one, it provides the ability Ability to keep kids on school site and staff on the school site until it's possible to evacuate them, you know, have the parents mm -hmm. come get them or they, you know, get themselves home, however. It allows the schools to continue operating in some cases indefinitely, in theory. It also provides emergency shelters, could provide emergency shelters for the local community. So all of these are really important pieces. And I'll dig into microgrids a little more. It's a really interesting topic. And it seems pretty simple and straightforward. Hey, if you got a solar PV system, 
that can generate energy and you've got a battery storage system sitting next to it, why don't we just, you know, when the grid goes down, we'll just use those and it'll be fine. <laughs> Except it's actually quite complex. And so doing the analysis for a microgrid project adds a lot of time and complexity and often cost to the project. So one of the first things you need to do is sit down and figure out what your critical loads are. Those are the loads that you need to continue operating when the grid goes down. The second piece you need to know is how long do we need to continue operating those critical loads? Is it two hours or four hours or five days or whatever? So those decisions need to be discussed and understood well. And once you have that, then you can start sizing the different components, the generation component, which is usually solar PV, and the storage component. We also often have conventional backup generation in that mix as well. So they might have diesel fan sets as well. All of that needs to be modeled and planned so that the objectives of the microgrid, keeping these critical loads up and running for the duration of time they need to be running are met. It's a lot of modeling and it's a lot of planning as well. And it can add a substantial amount of cost to projects, especially projects that are retrofits. So if you're doing a newer building or a major retrofit of the electrical system, then you can design the circuits which are going to support critical loads in ways that it's easy to disaggregate those so that they can be put into a microgrid easily. Older buildings that have existing you know, switchgear and yes. circuit layouts, they weren't designed with the idea that, oh, we're going to just make sure these certain circuits are energized when the grid goes down. It can be costly and difficult to actually disaggregate those critical load circuits from the rest of the circuits in the building and get them into a microgrid. That's not a trivial problem in some cases. So that stuff can add considerable cost and time and planning to it. So it's a great idea. And we're going to see more and more of those as time goes forward. In, for instance, that microgrid project at Santa Barbara USD, it's a cutting edge project. And it's going to be a really interesting project. Great for the community, great for the school. And I'm going to add one more piece to the microgrid thing. Again, it's a big topic. And I've actually done whole seminars on this. There is value, there is actually intrinsic value to being able to keep certain assets up and running when the grid goes down. So if you're a business and if the grid goes down, you can't run your business, you can't make sales, you can't bring in new business, there's a significant cost to that. Same with a public agency or a school. If you can't have the kids in there and the teachers teaching, there's a significant cost both into the education of the students, but also in the efficiency of running the organization. There's also cost to the wider community around the school as well, as now the kids are at home when they could be at school. And so the parents now have to figure out childcare or be home, which impacts their work. It impacts the local businesses around the school who might not get business because of this. So there are primary and secondary, you know, economic effects from these things. And one of the things we spend a fair amount of time doing is doing this value of resilience analysis, where we're trying to put a monetary value on some of these impacts so that when you're doing a microgrid project, there's a full accounting of the value of it. It's going to add cost to a project, but it also brings benefits. And many of those benefits are not as straightforward as, well, you're not going to buy energy from the utility anymore. And so that cost 
cost goes away. That's a simple analysis that you get with PV, but with microgrids, the value of resilience is quite a bit more complex, but it's there. And so that's one of the things we really focus on is getting a handle around that upfront, making sure that the decision makers understand how we're going to look at these various different benefits upfront so that when the staff brings a project to the decision makers, the board or the C-levels, that they are already aware of, oh yeah, I get it. I know that we were thinking about all these different benefits and these benefits are important and here's how we're weighting them. Now it's easier for us to make that decision when it comes to us. Yeah, I appreciate Tom, you mentioning like the value of resilience because I was reading about that and how you qualify it with the three different tiers. And I thought it was unique and creative because I don't think people look at these other economic benefits. It's not, as you mentioned, clear cut, like with a solar project, but with the microgrid, there's a lot of value being added that is not being defined. Tom, can you go into like the critical load aspect of the schools with microgrids? One of the ways that we analyzed the value of resilience for the Santa Barbara School District, that project in particular, was we were looking at the sites that have significant food storage. And most of that food storage is in refrigerators. Santa Barbara has got hundreds of thousands of dollars of food storage in these refrigerators. And if that grid goes down for a day or two, a lot of that food can be lost. A lot of that food is used to make sure that students are actually nourished enough to be able to learn. This is an important piece that I think is not well appreciated by a lot of people, is that many students get their primary nutrition through schools and would not get as good nutrition at home. And so that's a really important piece that our public schools bring forward. And it's one of the things that these schools that were selected in the Santa Barbara project are really critically important for. We also had a significant food storage at one of the maintenance facilities there too. And so that is backed up as well. And in fact, there's a lot of backup load at that maintenance facility around food storage. So again, that's just a critical piece to take into account when we're looking at microgrid resilience, the value of resilience. Yeah, definitely. That is like a mission critical, obviously, with refrigeration and students whose families are dependent on their students being able to eat at the school. So that was like the focus with that project. And I really appreciate you going into more detail about that. You know, a lot of companies are trying to have like net zero goals. How do you help your clients who are trying to do that? That's a great question. It's a big question too. So here in the state of California, the building codes are being rewritten over time to move towards net zero. And uh, Governor Jerry Brown in 2018 issued an executive order that said by 2025, you know, 50% of state buildings would be ZNE and by 2030, 100% would be. And these are new buildings or major retrofits. So there's also the Title 24 building codes in the state of California, which are moving in that direction as well. So as there is new development of buildings in the state of California, they're required to put in energy storage and energy generation in order to meet these requirements. So we're working with a number of clients to help them manage that. So if you can imagine, and I think you've, I'm sure, seen a number of these public facilities projects, right? Yes, (laughs) You know, they go out and you get your capital funding lined up. Often it's through grants and through bonds, and there's never enough funding for it, right? You want to build a building, you give it to the architects, they come up with something beautiful. You have to value engineer three quarters of this stuff out and you barely get by because there's never enough money to do this. 
Now we're going to add 10, 15, 20% to the cost of that building to put in these energy systems to meet state requirements. requirements yes. Yeah, it's like for a big building, it's like 10% of the cost. It can be. So that's a really significant issue for them. And so the way we're working with our clients is to help them bring in outside financing to cover that energy piece so that they can keep you know, the capital dollars that they have focused on their mission critical facilities. If it's a hospital, they need to, you know, have rooms and equipment for hospital patients. If it's a school, they need to teach students and have facilities and classrooms that are great. So they don't want to spend 10% more, you know, take 10% of their budget and put it on an energy project. So we're helping them bring in outside financing. And it actually helps in a couple of different ways. One, it does what I just talked about, allows them to keep their capital focused on their mission critical facilities. But number two, it brings in expertise in these systems. So if you think about the way buildings are designed right now, and the construction process for buildings. Typically, a general contractor will go out and bring in subs and, you know, have an electrical sub and a mechanical sub and steel sub. And all of those are very good at building typical buildings. But it's very rare that any of them have experience with these advanced energy systems. And so what we've seen is that if you just do that typical process and you have your electrical contractor design a solar PV system, for instance, and a battery system, they'll do it, but they don't have experience and they don't have purchase contracts and they don't have the whole maintenance, the O&M piece. I mean, they'll just design something. And it ends up costing a lot more, number one, and the designs are not nearly as good. I'm just saying, I'm not banging on electrical engineering firms. You know, we work with them all the time. But unless they have explicit experience with this and purchase contracts, then the cost of these systems is much higher and the designs are not nearly as good. So we're saying, hey, go out and do this with a PPA or with a lease. Keep that cost off your capital stack. Bring in the expertise so that these systems actually are designed quite well and that the designer of the system, they'll own it and they'll sell you these, you know, the electrons or the storage capacity and they'll make sure it works because one, they know how to do that. And two, if it doesn't work, they don't get paid. So we're working, for instance, with the County of San Mateo, state of California. They're doing six new building projects that we're working with them on creating a portfolio that keeps these costs out of their capital and brings in that expertise and the outside financing that will make this piece of it, this required piece of their building successful. Yeah, I think that's a really creative solution to basically really adding value to your clients. And that's a pretty creative way of doing it. I appreciate you explaining that, Tom. And you might wonder, so where does Sage fit in all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be yes. helpful to talk about. How so, are you engaged in that? And kind of like, what's your role in that type of an engagement? It's a pretty typical role for us where we do a high-level design of the systems up front. We tell the client, here's what you need. Here are different ways to finance it. Here's you know the different financial returns from it, various different risks, things like that. They can decide to move forward. And then we can manage you know RFP or competitive procurement to bring in that vendor to do that work. So it's really pretty typical for us. It's right in the middle of our strike zone. We do that really well. Again, if you have an electrical sub that's been brought in, there 
they're not really competing for that work. Whereas if you have Sage, for instance, manage a competitive procurement for this electrical piece, these advanced electrical systems, then we see that you can save, you know, five to 20% on the cost just by going through that competitive procurement. So that's one of the things that Sage brings to the table. One of our value propositions is that we run a very tight competitive procurement and it reduces your costs. That's a huge value proposition. Obviously, that's probably the primary value proposition, but you can talk about the other value proposition. <laughs> right. The green and the green and green energy is money. Yes. Um, so that's an important piece. And like I said, we can save, you know, five to twenty percent typically in project just the project installed costs by doing a good, solid competitive procurement. That's one piece. But we also bring unique and essential expertise to the customer's team that they don't have. I mean, our customers are not energy people. You know, they are people who are hospital administrators or school administrators or they're running big businesses and they don't have expertise here and they don't, you know, and they're developing expertise, is, you just can't do it. So we bring that to their team. That allows them to make much better decisions. We really reduce their staff time considerably, which saves them cost as well, because we're taking on that load and we can do that efficiently. And at the end of the day, what gets put forward is that the decisions made are based on projects that have much reduced risk. So we're very focused on project risks. And I mentioned earlier that when we're doing an analysis of a project during the investment grade feasibility study, we do a risk analysis of the various different input variables. And as part of that risk analysis, we look at the variables that have the biggest impact on the financial performance of the project, for instance. And by identifying those variables up front in the process, it allows us to say, hey, here are the things that are the greatest risk for your financial returns. And here are the various mitigations that we need to think about now in the planning process to address those risks, to reduce the overall project risk over time. Those are the big ticket things that we bring to the table. We reduce your costs, we significantly reduce your risks and help you figure out how to mitigate them. And we keep your staff time from getting overwhelmed by oh, these right. projects. That's amazing. Like just hearing like how much value that you're adding to your clients. And it's pretty easy to understand why you've grown so much in a very short period of time and doing all these interesting types of engagements and expanded your business to all these different energy technologies. How's your company getting compensated with these sorts of engagements? There are a number of different ways, but one of the things that we do is that we're really ethically clear about what we're doing. And what we are very careful about is maintaining our independence and our trust with our clients. So when we're talking about being compensated and how these things are structured, we're very clear not to put ourselves in a position where we don't get paid unless we tell the client to do something. For instance, oh yeah, we're not going to get paid unless you go ahead and do this project. Project. You know, that's called working at risk, right? In some, yes. some industries. We don't think that's a valid, I mean, we're really, as I said, ethically clear about what we're doing. It's the foundation of the integrity and the trust we've established with our clients. But we still are really clear not to put ourselves at risk in the sense that we have to tell the client to do something in order to get paid. Because that, you know, incents us to do something and would reduce the trust the client would have in what we tell them. Even if it's perfectly true, they know, oh, well, these guys are just telling us this because, you know, they're going to make 
a lot more money if they tell us this. So how do we get compensated? We're careful about that. We can get paid directly. We basically break projects down into different tasks. And for each one of those tasks, we'll typically have a fixed fee price that the client can pay if they'd like, or they can pay us on a time and materials basis. So they get to select between those. And again, we break them down into each task so the client can select the various different tasks they want to use us for. And they might start off with one or two tasks and then see if they want to move forward with the project and then add tasks as the project moves forward. Sometimes we get compensated or get contracted for the entire project front to back up front. It's also possible in third-party financed projects to have SAGE's fee and other project development fees, for instance, legal and admin costs or outside testing agencies that are required. You can roll those costs into the third-party project financing as well without having a conflict of interest. So the way that's done is, for instance, if you have a power purchase agreement with a solar PV project, the contract would say, hey, there's you know $1,000 here for are these project development costs that you, the vendor, who are contracting this PPA and are going to own and operate it, you're going to pay that money to us. Let's say it's a school district. You're going to pay that money to us, the school district. And the school district then turns around and pays their consultants and their legal fees and their test and inspection. So it goes back through the client so that the client has control over that money. And if they're not happy with what we're doing or their legal's doing, whatever, they don't pay them. But again, this means that the third-party financing can actually put that money on the table, client maintains control over it. In an energy project, there are tax benefits that can be applied towards some of this work. So for instance, Sage's work doing energy consulting for the project development, that is applicable to the federal ITC. So the investment tax credit can be taken on the cost of those development costs. And that's a good thing. It reduces our prices to the PPA developer, which can make it more efficient for them to pay that fee. Was that a clear answer? Yeah, that was a clear answer. You know, the interesting thing I think about that is like, that's potentially like a huge savings towards the client with the investment tax credit being like 26% now, 22% next year. That's a huge savings to your development. And that's not included, you know, depreciation benefits as well. Yeah, the appreciation's on the asset, not the development cost. Oh, not the development, sorry, yeah. So I was thinking the other huge thing that I really was interested with this answer was about basically the transparency about how really your compensation structure is based on doing what's best for the client, which I've seen like a lot of other people who say they're, you know, consultants or looking out best interest of the client are compensated differently. So I think, you know, that's a huge point that you mentioned and explained that I think is a big sort of value add that you're adding towards the customer. So keeping them in control, right? So our clients have control and we are always beholden to doing the best work for them so that we get paid. And like I said, we would do that anyway because (laughs) (laughs) our crown jewels as consultants are expertise and integrity. And that integrity piece, you know, that is built up by being really ethically clear and consistent and straightforward with our clients and building that trust over time. And without that, we wouldn't have a business that we really wanted to run. That's just like a cornerstone important to us. And whenever we bring new people into the company, the first talk I have with them is, hey, we're really an ethically clear and consistent and intentional business. And here are our values. I think that's really what's helped us build this business, really, frankly, is that, you know, we just bring expertise to the table and we do that with integrity. 
That's key. And it sounds like a lot of business is obviously coming through referrals through your existing vendors. So your integrity, your transparency, which seems to be part of the culture of the company, makes a huge difference as far as growing and building the business and being successful as you have today. So I think that's really helpful for you to you know talk about that and explain. And what do you think, you know, Vice President Joe Biden won the presidential election. Do you think there'll be any change on the federal level with clean energy with Vice President Joe Biden becoming president of the United States? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is, boy, it's hard to tell. And on a bigger picture, we anticipate that a Biden administration will put back in place, for instance, the Paris, you know, the Paris Accords, will put back in place the fuel economy standards for cars, will push forward renewable energy development as much as they can. Where it gets hard to tell and probably problematic is that I think probably we'll have a Republican control. Senate, and they have not been terribly supportive of renewable energy expenditure in the past. And so extending or adding incentives to drive the renewables market in the United States is going to be a big lift. It's going to be a challenge. I think there are strong arguments for it that both parties can get behind. It develops jobs, it reduces costs, it makes America much more competitive in the energy space globally. These are really important things that I think everybody could agree is a good thing. I'm not sure that everybody is going to agree if that's a good thing because they haven't in the past. So we'll see. I am cautiously optimistic. Again, I think the sort of bigger picture things that the Biden administration can do directly will happen. The more legislative backed things are going to be a greater challenge. That is great insight, Tom. I think a lot of what you say, like I definitely agree with you and it'll be an interesting, you know, four years and to see what's going to happen. It will indeed. Yes. I would like to see all of us Americans start speaking and respecting each other more. That to me would be the greatest gift to us. Energy is a great thing, but I think we as a society need to become a little bit more comfortable with each other and willing to listen and work with each other. That is a great point. I think that's really important. I think we as a country have been divided and hopefully, as you said, we could come together and listen. And I think that would help a lot of things that are happening with in the country, I feel like. Tom, this has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate your time today. If our listeners, who we call the Solar Mavericks, want to learn more about Sage Energy Consulting, what's the best way that they can learn about the company? Sure. Well, of course, we've got a website, which is www.sagerenew.com. They can find out information about our company there. You can also just get on your favorite browser and put in Sage Energy Consulting, and you'll see a number of the different projects we're working on and how we're involved in various different activities in the energy world. And you can always call me as well. So (laughs) you'll find my number on the website, and that'd be great. Yeah. And we'll have as well on the notes of the podcast, your contact information and the company's contact information if people want to reach out. And Tom, I really appreciate it. This has been really exciting. A lot of great information. And I appreciate you talking about your company. And it's really amazing what you and your team have been doing. So thank you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing, bringing this kind of information to folks around the industry and hopefully a wider audience so that people learn about renewables and understand that it's a real viable industry that really will help make our country more competitive globally.
I agree. You're preaching to the choir and I appreciate you sharing your story to our audience because I think they could learn a lot from it. So thank you again. Thanks, Benoit. Oh, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. <laughs>